0: We appreciate you coming to this uh, debate this afternoon or evening, depending on what time zone you're in. Um, Today's debate is on the proposition, no enemies to the right. Uh, We have four debaters uh, in support. We have the right-wing writer, Charles Haywood, and newfounding's Nate Fisher. Uh, Against, we have uh, the Christian writer, Neil Shenvey, and Center for Renewing America's Michael Young, also known as Vocal Distance. Uh, We also want to recognize the magazine I am 1776 for helping promote and put this together. Um, So for those of you who are uninitiated, let me briefly set the stakes before we turn it over to the debaters. The basic concept, no enemies to the right, is a riff on the French Revolution slogan, no enemies to the left. Uh, The idea is that constant infighting, gatekeeping, self-regulation have fractured the political right and rendered it ineffective. And in order to salvage the coalition, these proponents argue, established conservatives must cease to criticize or exclude voices to their right. On the other hand, as our two critics will argue, um, uh, uh, the no enemy to the right uh, position uh, can lead to destructive uh, purity spirals, reinforces uh, left-wing narratives, and forfeits any claim the right may have on moral action. So as we begin, we'll be taking Uh, alternating opening statements, uh, beginning with Charles Haywood, then Neil Shenvey, then Nate Fisher, then Michael Young. Uh, I'd ask them to limit uh, their statements to three minutes. I'll give them warning. Uh, Then we'll have a moderated debate uh, uh, for the remainder of the first hour, and then we'll do some audience questions and comments in the second hour. Um, My goal with this debate, and perhaps others in the future, is to start answering uh, essential questions for the political right, Um, And I think that I'd like to address, uh, hopefully through this evening, uh, four key questions um, that are raised and that uh, No Enemies to the Right um, uh, uh, either answers or does not answer sufficiently. The first is coalition management. How can the right have a successful political coalition? Second is, uh, what should the process for assessing ideas be, ensuring that there are enough new ideas, uh, but bad ideas can be filtered out and discarded? The, the third is uh, the moral consideration. Um, does no enemies to the right, uh, is it an amoral position, an immoral position, or a moral position? And finally, the most important question is practical outcomes. Which path, either for or against, is most likely to lead to victory? Uh, so, um, you know, without further ado, let's, uh, let's begin. Uh, we'll be giving three minutes to each of the speakers, uh, beginning with Charles Haywood in support of the proposition, No enemies to the right.
1: And here I am. If I had known it was three minutes or any specific time, I would have put a big clock on my screen, but I will try to be reasonably concise. So I'm, I suppose, responsible at some level for the modern incarnation of this discussion. Uh, My opinion is that this is a very valuable exercise because I think a great deal of the information, discussion, arguments around Netter, as it's sometimes called uh, is, is kind of low quality. Some of thats frequently that's deliberate because there's an awful lot of question begging and straw manning as well as simply malicious twisting. Uh, some of it is just because people talk at cross purposes. so I'm very glad that we're here. Uh, my perspective on on Netter is that the, I'll just kind of run down my, my basic outline of the way I think about it. The goal of the right is to defeat the left. That's the only goal that matters because the left is the enemy of mankind and mankind cannot flourish until the left is defeated. Uh, that, of course, begs the question, or brings up the question, rather, of what is the left? And the left is the, in es- the essence of the Enlightenment, which is the ideology that demands total emancipation from all unchosen bonds, as well as total forced egalitarianism, all in service of a heaven on earth, a possibly a utopia that is possible to reach uh, in the present age by following these ideological demands. And the left is the enemy of, as I say, mankind, but more broadly, the right. And the right is people who are not left. And that is a perfectly adequate definition because the left is is relatively easy to define, though obviously any boundary is porous. The right is people who are not left. The left is the enemy of the right, which of course brings up the question, what is an enemy? And an enemy is not, for example, someone that you criticize or disagree with. And, and Chris mentioned the word criticize in his introduction, I think, that's something we'll, we'll have to dig deeper on, which is the distinction between argument and criticism among people on the right and uh, attacks on people on the right as enemies, uh, using the the Carl Schmitt definition of enemy as an adversary who intends to negate his opponent's way of life and therefore must be repulsed or fought in order to preserve one's own form of existence is the proper way to view uh, what an enemy is in the sense of the left is the enemy uh, of the right. So Given that definition, we can, of course, disagree on the right. We can dislike people on the right. We can ignore people on the right. Uh, We can attempt to prevent people on the right from undermining us if they're doing that. But these people, anybody on the right is not an existential enemy in the sense that I just defined. And I think it's important also to say that really the acronym should be no enemies on the right rather than to the right. The original when I use enemies to the right," it was in response to a specific attack by the odious Rod Dreyer on an individual who, uh, who, in his life outside, of his connection with Dreyer, uh, had made statements Dreyer didn't like. But I think when you say "to to the right," so always appropriate there. When you say two to the to the right," you introduce as the initial inquiry a question of relative position, and there's no reason for that no enemies on the right includes no enemies to the right. So really I would say it's no enemies on the right. And that avoids these discussions about who is where on the, on the spectrum. Uh, and I do think that there is some, as I say, porosity in the boundaries between left and right. Most commonly from my perspective on what would are sometimes called the intellectual dark web or classical liberals, people who are fundamentally on the left and ultimately will have to be defeated in order for mankind to flourish. But that doesn't mean that there's not some room for, for working with uh, people who are uh, somewhat on the left. Um, on the other hand, we always have to be aware that those people are fundamentally enemies and will end up there at some point. As well, of course, people on the right. When the right gains power and the left is as forgotten as Mithraism, then the, the, on the right, there'll be all sorts of enemies because that's the way it goes. You, you can't run a society where there is everything is a free-for-all. This is a strictly tactical principle having no moral component that is designed to defeat the left, which is our prime objective.
0: Fantastic. Uh, w- w- simply put. And so we'll go to the next uh, uh, speaker to introduce the opposing point of view. Uh, Neil Shenvey, if you can unmute and uh, let it rip.
2: Thank you so much, Chris, for inviting me. And thank you, Charles, for that great succinct description. I definitely don't want to strawman Charles. I want to begin by just quoting verbatim from his essay on No Enemies of the Right, where he introduced that concept. So here's a verbatim quote from that essay. You'll hear it dovetail as well with what he just said. He writes, quote, winning means the total permanent elimination of all left power, and even more importantly, the total discrediting, both on a moral and practical basis of all left ideology. If we begin with the end in mind, we see that any firepower, emphasis any, directed at the right is necessarily antithetical to the goal of destroying the left. Any contentious discussion with those on the right, wherever exactly they may fall in the spectrum of not left, should instead be done privately and be strictly tactical to agree on how we may cooperate to achieve our joint ends. This is very important because he, in his essay, originally said that we can't direct any firepower at the right. We can't have any contentious discussion with those on the right. That all has to be strictly private and strictly tactical, meaning how we can agree to cooperate to destroy the left. Now, my argument tonight is that the strategy of no enemies to the right is both theologically impermissible for Christians and practically counterproductive. It's immoral. It will compromise and corrupt the Christians who embrace it and will make it infinitely harder to defeat wokeness, which is my major concern right now. Uh, Michael and I, local and I, both really want to see wokeness in our culture eradicated, both from the church and society, and we want to uh, make Christians aware of that danger. but We have to do it within biblical parameters. So uh, Charles was helpful in saying that his strategy, Netter, No Enemies to the Right, was a purely tactical approach with, quote, no moral component. Well, that's exactly my problem. I would argue that Netter actually flouts numerous explicit biblical commands. And that since we're all professing Christians, it's a major problem. And Chris actually asked, is there a moral consideration? I would say yes. For example, for Christians, uh, Paul commands us in Ephesians to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, Ephesians 5.11. In Timothy Paul writes as for elders who persist in sin rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may the rest may stand in fear Proverbs 13:20 says whoever walks with the wise becomes wise but the companion of fools will suffer harm Now throughout the Old Testament we see the prophets rebuking not just evil kings or pagan nations they rebuke good kings like David when he sins they do it publicly it's actually even God even says You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. So as Christians, we're told to rebuke sin where we see it, especially when it's threatening the church. When we see people, even our political allies doing what's evil, we can't be purely tactical. We have to be honest and fair. That is God's command. When I listened to Charles' description of his strategy, I noticed there was no biblical commands anywhere in it, hardly at all. There is no moral consideration at all. As he says, it's strictly tactical. But I'm going to argue primarily for Christians, if netter is theologically impermissible, we must reject it. We just can't do that. We have to be, have equal weights and measures and call out sin wherever we see it. We can triage sin. We don't have to be gatekeeping constantly. We don't have to clutch our pearls whenever the left insults us or calls us names. But We do have to be fair and we have to be moral and obey God's commands and how we deal with politics. So thank you very much. I look forward to our night together.
0: Thank you, Neil. And uh, next to Nate Fisher of New Founding, uh, in support of the proposition, No Enemies to the Right.
3: Thank you, Chris. I, uh, my frame here is probably a little different than, uh, than Charles's. I'm coming at this as someone who is focused on building. And the question is, what are we building? It's not just who are we defeating, but it's also what are we building Newfoundings, a venture firm. Uh, a, a lot of, I think, the question that the right needs, if it's going to, uh, if it's going to offer any viable alternative, is the question of what we're building toward. And uh, in many ways, I think we've reflexively, we've we reflexively retreated it into a conservatism where all we're trying to do is preserve stuff from the past, and that's led to lots of. Uh, that's naturally led to lots of conflicts over what do you want to preserve? What don't you want to preserve? That is, uh, I think, it's something that the left has been able to co-opt in a way that has been unhelpful, uh, allowing us to, uh, going back to really to Buckley, to sort of turn our guns on on each other, uh, to cut off our, our sort of right, right boundary. Uh, what I want to really focus on here is then the distinction between enemy and uh, someone who may may share a different vision. I think there's a lot of room to debate. Uh, There's a lot of room to sort of jostle, uh, perhaps vigorously, over what the appropriate vision for the right is. Fundamentally, that's very, very different than treating those people as enemies. And I think what's ironic to me is many of the people who criticize uh, Netter seem averse to the very concept of enemies in politics. So it's not that they're averse to They're averse to us not treating people to our right as enemies, and yet they often refuse to treat even the left as enemies. Uh, I, I think they intuitively recognize that there's a distinction between sort of politics as war, where you're trying to really destroy people's capacity to do you any harm, and good faith discussion over where you should go. My view would be we should probably apply a lot of the principles that they have applied somewhat idealistically and perhaps naively to politics i uh, more broadly to our discussions on the right and we should be respectful of a wide range of views on the right uh, e- even those that we would consider sharply wrong even as we recognize that uh, those are not ultimately our enemies the the large and powerful uh, regime that's trying to destroy us is on the left and those are the people who should be treated as enemies so it's a uh, I think there's room for tactical debate over how we can correct other people on the right, over how we can challenge what we see as wrong ideas, certainly different norms perhaps within churches, within institutions, within our own things, while recognizing that we're not trying to turn our guns on them. We're not trying to uh, employ uh, tactics that really leverage the left's moral frame to bring down disproportionate destruction on people within the right. We should be aiming those at the left.
0: Well said, Nate. Thank you. Um, And to wrap up the introductory statements, we'll go now to Michael Young of the Center for New America, also known as
4: Local Distance. I just want to say test. Is this working? Can everyone hear me? Yes. Go ahead. Okay. Perfect. So I'm going to come at this from a little bit of a different spot than everyone else has come at it so far. I appreciated what everyone said in terms of getting clear, and I also appreciate that there appears to be a little bit of nuance between Nate's position and Charles' position. The position I take is that no enemies to the right has two elements to it. There's the no enemies part, and then there's to the right. And I think that there's two issues that I take with both Nate and Charles' formulation of No Enemies to the Right. There's two concerns I have. The first is dealing with the the to-the-right part. In his article, or his discussion with, I believe, I am 1776, uh, Charles said that the Enlightenment philosophy had at its core, right at the bottom of it, the idea that there was no... that. It was the the dissolution of all bonds not continually chosen. And he repeated that again today. And then it was forced egalitarianism. I think this is wrong. I think it matters for two reasons. In his descriptions of no enemies on the right or no enemies to the right, Charles has put forward two things. One is where the target should be in terms of who we're aiming at, and that's the left. And then, on the other side, who we spare our fire to. But if our targeting mechanism is wrong, we're going to end up quarreling with people and aiming our fire at people who are not against us, and we're going to end up giving cover to people who would be against us, who would be against our purposes. And I think that's a mistake. Plenty of Enlightenment philosophers were certainly not against bonds not continually chosen. I'll just pull out just a couple of quotes real quick here so that people can see exactly what I'm talking about. Um, This is from a wonderful article written by, if I can just pull up the name of the author here. From the Emory Law Journal, this is John Witt Jr., talking about Locke, and he talks about how Locke grounded marriage and the family in a set of natural rights and duties. It was a natural right for a man and woman to enter a contract, and it was a natural duty for them to render procreation an essential condition of whatever moral contract they entered in. It was a natural condition of children to be born helpless, and thus a natural right for them to be nurtured, educated, and raised to maturity by parents who conceived them. So, I could quote Pieces like this all day. And if Charles wants to continue to deny it, I could just go down my list of quotes over and over again, where Enlightenment philosophers, everyone from Kant to Hume to Locke, talked about the duty of parents towards children, um, their opposition to voluntary divorce, what we would now might call no-fault divorce, so there really is nothing in the Enlightenment philosophers, or nothing in the Enlightenment philosophy, which, which, uh, holds on to, pushes toward, advances, or accepts Charles Framing that of of the dissolution of all bonds not continuously chosen, or the emancipation from all bonds not continuously chosen. The reason this is a problem is because there's an awful lot of Enlightenment philosophers who do who would be whose work we could make excellent use of. And there's a lot of Enlightenment philosophy that's really right in the pocket when we're talking about fighting against wokeness. And if we turn our guns and our cannons towards Enlightenment philosophy, we will be missing the target. It simply is just not the case that that's what the Enlightenment is about. And if you make that the object of your attack, then you're going to be firing at the wrong thing. That's the first thing. The second point is a point about leadership, and that is, who you win with is who you govern with. If Charles wants to reduce the left to something like the cult of Mithras, a sort of historical anachronism, that's going to take at least a generation. That's not something that happens in five or ten years. And what that means is, between now and when this leftist ideology is reduced to rubble, we have to govern. We have to, at some point, be able to take power, establish communities. We have to be able to live and work with people. And that's a serious problem. And the reason that this is becoming a problem is because... How do I put this? If you say no enemies to the right, and you allow people with who might be on the right with odious views odious ideas, evil thinking, those people get into your leadership. Douglas Wilson said this really, really well. He said, you don't ever punch right to win accolades from the left. They're not going to give you that anyhow. But don't forget that you earlier learned the lesson of not caring what they think. You punch right because you're keeping diseased minds out of your leadership, and you are doing this because diseased minds make lousy decisions. They wreck things. You are doing it because God requires it. If we allow poor thinking into our process, then what we're going to end up doing is shipwrecking our own movement. And so I think for that reason, we need to have enemies to the right so that we can see poor thinking and diseased minds out of our leadership.
0: Thank you. And local distance that uh, concludes our initial statements. And I think we've outlined pretty well, the philosophical foundations, both for and against Um, But what I'd like to do is jump now into a practical application question. So what does this actually mean in practice? Um, And a, a kind of litmus test or rather a case study that I see as one being very instructive is, what what should the right do, according to proponents and opponents of the of the proposition, in the case of someone, for example, uh, uh, like Richard Spencer, whom I think we would all uh, uh, consider, uh, 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 you know, we would all consider ourselves in opposition to his ideology, to his politics, to his activism, um, uh, assuming that. Um, you know, how would how would the proponents of no enemies to the right handle such a figure who I think is not only wrong uh, morally, politically, practically, um, but also uh, really serves not um, not as a foil, uh, 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 you know, or not as a rather a, a, a positive effect on the right in any capacity, but a foil that is used by the left to then tarnish the right as a whole. So let's go first to Charles and Nate and. Um, under your theory of no enemies to the right, how would you handle a figure such as Richard Spencer? Well, I would
1: say, I mean, we can leave aside the fact that Richard Spencer is a clown and probably a fed and focus on the fact that he's a, a figure with certain unpleasant ideological aspirations who is on the right. And I think the, this kind of goes to what Michael was saying about uh, Douglas Wilson and punching to the right and diseased minds. It, this is an easy answer. The answer is you don't need to give, spend any time whatsoever on Richard Spencer because he doesn't add any value politically to what you're, you're doing. And so when you, you, punching to the right in this case is not attempting to destroy him, to do again what Greer was doing originally, attempting to destroy someone professionally, make his children hungry, prevent him from getting a job again. We should just ignore people like Richard Spencer. I frankly think the much more difficult case is if someone were to rise on the right, uh, channeling actual white nationalism, as opposed to like the the BS that we everything is accused of being white nationalism. But let's say a real white nationalist arose who had real political power. I think that is actually a more challenging question for No Enemies on the Right. And I think the answer so someone who was able to get a significant percentage of the vote, for example, or to bring out a significant percentage of the vote, or in so- some way to, to wield political power and therefore to be of assistance against the left. So I th- I, that person is not Richard Spencer, but you could imagine such a person. And, and I think that the answer is that you should cooperate with that person in order to destroy the power of the left. But it has to be done. And I think Chris has used this term prudentially, You you have to evaluate whether that might cause more damage in any particular application of political power. But in neither case, neither Richard Spencer nor this hypothetical non-existent white nationalist, would you attempt to destroy that person uh, politically, professionally, societally or any other way?
0: Okay, and and, and let's go to Neil. I think there'll be a strong uh, uh, reaction against uh, uh, Charles's uh, uh, position here. Neil, would you like to uh, offer a counterpoint?
2: Yes, thanks, Chris. So I was surprised to hear Charles say explicitly that he would cooperate with the white nationalist, you know, nationally powerful candidate who's getting votes and could be elected president. He would cooperate with him to, to destroy the left. I want to point out again here that I'm making a moral argument, not a prudential one, not a tactical one. I'm saying Christians just can't go along with that. And here's an example. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons God commands us to rebuke evil, to expose it, to not cooperate, it, to not go along with it, is to protect other Christians in our churches. I, I think example, a real life example would be uh, Andrew Tate, who is, you know, a very sleazy individual. I think most of us would recognize that. But he has a tremendously large following of young men who are disaffected. Maybe people that are even in the church and going to youth group are following this guy. Now, he would be happy. Maybe, I don't know, Tate's politics, but it seems like he's very anti-left and anti-woke. He might be happy to help you destroy the left. But thinking from a biblical perspective, we're not primarily called to organize some political event. We're called to propose evil, and that can mean that if I see a bunch of People in my church following Andrew Tate, I'm going to say absolutely not. I'm going to speak out publicly against him. And I'm not going to try to destroy him. I'm not sure that I want to be involved in destroying anyone's career or family, but I do want to warn people publicly about him. And so, again, Christians simply have to put the moral and spiritual above the political and tactical. And so if God commands it, we simply do it, whether or not we're worried about it costing us votes. And uh, so I'll stop there and let either Nate or Wokel contribute.
0: So yeah yeah let's let let let's keep moving and I, I would also perhaps ask and then p- posit this first uh, to Nate. I mean, if you look at the history of the French Revolution, which where the slogan "No enemies to the left" originated, uh, it, it, it's not that it delivered uh, justice. Uh, it, it's not that it delivered a a, a uh, successful and stable politics. Um, of course, it, it it achieved power for a, a, a very short time. Um, but but in fact, it led to a kind of spiraling radicalization process that culminated in the towering irrationality of the, the terror. And so why would this uh, policy of no enemies to the right um, uh, uh, be successful when history might demonstrate uh, uh, that it has not in the past?
3: So I, I think this gets to a key distinction between Uh, No enemies to the right and no enemies to the left. Uh, For the left, this is an intentional strategic move to ratchet uh, politics to the left. They, as progressives, they have a vision of history that supports any move to the left generally or generally sees that as a good thing. We don't have the same thing. We don't have a progressive vision where we can just ratchet to the right And I think Charles and I both agree this is a, for the right, this must be a prudential tactical move rather than one that is, uh, rather than the one that is sort of ingrained into the movement as a, uh, as an absolute principle designed to achieve a, a ratchet that we believe is both inevitable and virtuous. So I think that's the, that's the key distinction that I would make, uh, that I think is important to remember. I think many people see that parallel to the left and they assume this must be the exact reverse of that. We just want to move things as far right as possible. No, we want to defeat the left. Uh, We want to be prudent about how to accomplish that. And we want to, uh, we we want to move towards something that's fundamentally virtuous and non-left and and really non-progressive in that broad sense in nature. So, I, I would say there's a couple of things. One is, is actually thinking about how you're going to persuade people. So going back to Spencer as an example, do you want to persuade Spencer's followers? I would argue anyone who's drawn to Spencer, and this is how do you move, how can this tactic actually move people back away from radicalism? A- anyone who is even tempted by Spencer is not going to be, uh, it's certainly not going to be persuaded by most left-aligned attacks against him, Uh, what will persuade them is an engagement on common principles. If they see themselves on the right and if there's any common principles, you're going to have more luck actually making right-aligned critiques of Spencer's views. Spencer, I believe, is an atheist. Uh, He's a materialist. In many ways, he's a, uh, in many ways, he is a progressive uh, in many aspects of his view of the world. Uh, We actually at American Reformer, which is a publication that uh, is aimed at evangelicals that I helped found, recently published an article that uh, resurrected a critique of, it was a critique of the Nazis by Bavarian Christians, grounded in traditional conservative values and essentially noting that a lot of what are often seen today as far right ideologies, uh, Nazism, was actually a perversion, it essentially drew on and perverted and exploited people's natural and good love of uh, country, love of people, toward the advancement of a totalitarian ideology. So I'll say that's a that's a refutation, but it's a refutation that is uh, it's an argument grounded in principles that are actually on the right, designed to persuade those people away from radicalism, ultimately. Uh, right-wing thinking, conservatism and, and other forms of right-wing thinking are fundamentally non-radical in nature. So if you're effectively advocating for those, you are not going to, there, there's no possibility of the same uh, spiraling to the right because the most authentic, or, or spiraling toward radicalism because the most authentic versions of them are not radical and utopian in the same sense, radical, utopian, or totalitarian in the same sense. So I actually think that uh, approaching this from a right wing frame uh, is going to uh, insulate us far better than the, the typical left aligned attack, which will often just steal their resolve and highlight the contrast between them and the, and the left and really position them as uh, the strongest champion risks positioning the radicals as the strongest champions against the left.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I think that is a, a, a helpful distinction that you're drawing, that there is a process for persuading, you know, radical elements within the right. And there is a process for adjudicating some of these disputes and, and settling some of these ideas, leading towards a, uh, a, a kind of more traditional uh, uh, conservatism. And so I would I would put to local distance to strengthen that argument and to, to challenge His position, you know, what we're hearing from Nate uh, is an argument uh, that that actually no enemies to the right could help um, uh, uh, persuade people who are disaffected, who are tempted, who are uh, lured into radical ideologies on the right. And would it be true, and how would you respond to, to the argument that, in fact, by punching to the right, by marginalizing, by serving up for cancellation? Uh, or, or kind of denunciation elements of the right, sometimes unfairly, that you're actually uh, pushing those folks uh, more into a corner of, of radicalization rather than offering a path for, let's say, redemption, moderation, or, uh, or, or persuasion uh, against those views.
5: Uh,
4: I think the flaw in that argument is that exact same argument could be used towards the left. Why would you bother attacking the left? Don't you want to bring those people back toward the right? Don't you want to offer them a way over? Don't you want to stop alienating people on the left? What about moderate liberals? What about liberals who are, say, decently far to the left, but haven't quite gone woke? So, if you're, the, the whole conversation is predicated that you have to have a certain number of enemies, because if there's no enemies to the right, well, where are the enemies on the left? The argument wasn't no enemies, and the argument wasn't don't attack people it's sparing the right from its from fire on the right and so that same argument that nate just used you could you could kind of turn that around and say look isn't that true of centrists and moderates i mean charles we heard him called rod Dreher odious i mean do we worry about alienating rod Dreher's fans when we do that so i i think the, the point that needs to be settled on is that there are certain situations in which we, have, we do have to try and persuade. And there is a time and a place to give somebody a call privately or to, to lay out arguments, and we do need to do that. But if somebody with abhorrent political views, if somebody with views that are, that are evil that we can't afford to break bread with spiritually when someone like an Andrew Tate starts to kind of rise up and cynically use the concerns of people that have been excluded from debate because of the ways that the, the current media situation has positioned the Overton window, and then you someone wants to kind of ride in on those concerns and bring a whole pile of evil baggage with them, at some point, that person needs to be stopped We need to be able to derail that train before it gets too far out of the, uh, before it gets too far down the track. I think that, I mean, yeah, I, I want, using the Richard Spencer example, you know, I, I don't want to see Richard Spencer go to hell. I don't want to see anybody go to hell. I don't want anybody to have a hard time, say, feeding their kids. That's, that's not something I want. But, if someone is making a living at politics or trying to make a living at politics and they have evil views, I think that we're, we're justified in saying we don't want you taking a place of leadership in our institutions or alternatively, we want you removed from your place of leadership in our institutions. And someone might say, well, now that g- guy can't feed his family. That's how he was doing it. And that may be so. And that's tragic. But there are consequences for breaking bread with evil. And one of those consequences is that that good people are going to fight you. You don't get to say, hey, I need to feed my family so you can't cancel me. I need to be able to get along in the world. I don't deserve to be destroyed. I'm not doing something that's maybe as bad as the other side is doing, so you can't touch me and then use that kind of cloak of protection to, to bring the yeast of your evil ideas into the bread of the conservative movement. And that, I think, is really touching on the problem, is that at some point we have to prevent evil people from trying to enter into our space and spreading the yeast of their evil through the dough of our movement. Gatekeeping is, unfortunately, necessary, given the fact that conservative political movements... In fact, all political movements are social in nature and ideas can be socially contagious. They can gain traction. You let people in. It, it can have a, an effect on, on the size of the Overton window. It can have an effect on how people are viewed. It can have effect on moral paradigms. So our movement needs to, in some sense, be like a garden and we need to pull weeds, my friends. And that means that when someone comes in with evil or Haboran views, we need to be able to push them out lest they bring the yeast of their, their evil into the dough of our movement. And,
0: and so I would, I, I would perhaps go to Charles next. And Charles, one of the criticisms that I think is a significant one of the no one to the right policy um, is that in fact it is not an amoral principle, uh, meaning uh, kind of Machiavellian or effectual truth oriented principle. But in fact, it codifies uh, uh, a, a moral hierarchy in which the, the man uh, furthest to the right is awarded the privileged moral position. He actually is the one and, and the only one who uh, uh, cannot be criticized. And so how would you respond to that line of criticism? And if, if you dispute it, Um, What kind of process of gatekeeping or self-regulation is possible under a political movement governed by the principle of no enemies
1: to the right? Sure. I mean, I think I'll I'll say briefly to what Volkow was saying. We've very rapidly reached exactly where I expected we'd, we'd reach, which is the useless straw manning argument where apparently we have an enormous volume of bread now because evil, the yeasty evil is everywhere and we need to push it back when the reality is the people that we're talking about, the people who are being destroyed on the right are universally people who are, have no power, who when they're destroyed, don't get a new job, don't have the resources of the left and so on. So this idea that somehow there's like a creeping evil or a set of evil like the blob whose tentacles are reaching all over us is just a straw man. It's just a fake. It's just a way to justify the desire to signal to the left that I'm not low status, because I'm not like those other people whose opinions are beyond the pale. So I I, I think that we need to avoid these these kind of straw men. And related to that, to the point that we don't want to have a purity spiral, as, as Neil identifies, or creeping movement always towards the right. As I already said, and that's very easily taken care of, by not inquiring where people are relative to each other on the right at all. That is not making that a threshold inquiry to the decision about whether you're going to destroy somebody, but just saying outright, I'm never going to destroy anybody on the right. I'm going to prudentially uh, either correct them in a way that does not advance the goals to the left by signaling to the left that I'm a good person because I'm destroying this person, but rather is done privately or in a semi-private situation, um, or I'm just going to ignore that person. But what I'm not going to do is say, "Well, this person's on the right, but to my left, so I'm going to ignore him." But this per- I'm, I'm going to attack him. But this person is to my right and on the right, so I'm going to ignore him. That is also a type of straw man argument. This idea that somehow we need to focus on to the right. The original phrasing "to the right" admittedly implies that, but that's really a happenstance. And I think people have latched onto this in an attempt to to create this straw man that, well, then we we're always going to move to the right. It's, there's an easy answer to that, which is never inquire where you are on the right spectrum. Merely say nobody on the right should be attacked with intent to destroy.
0: I think that, uh, you know, to, to follow up on that, though, Charles, that at, at a certain point, ignoring someone becomes untenable. I mean, politics, uh, you always try to ignore, uh, uh, you know, bad news or, or, or attacks. Um, but at some point, the dynamics shift so that you have to respond. And so when you hit that point, what is the, the course of action and how would the right be able to self-regulate uh, under, the, the, under the principle of no enemies on the right or to the right?
1: I, I think that ignoring is only one possible tactical decision. And I do think that you're exactly right, that sometimes either circumstances or the behavior of others require people to respond publicly to intra-right uh, arguments. Uh, I mean, right now most of those are are kind of uh, responses of people who are being attacked uh, by people again, signaling to the left that they're not low status. But I, I don't think ignoring. I'm not counseling that ignoring is the only, or for that matter, even often the best solution. At, at some point, you do have to hash out uh, arguments with people, and also the the there are people who are on the right but are either ill-informed, under-informed, not wholly persuaded. And you need to be able to communicate your ideas effectively, including the distinctions and ideas among the right, in order to have those people become full members, participating members of the right. So I'd just say, I, I, I think it's, it's incorrect to say that ignoring is kind of the prime strategy. It's merely one possible strategy
0: and 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 neil to 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 shift the the debate the other direction and to press uh, on behalf of the proposition um you know there is a i think a justified um, uh, frustration with some people on the right it, 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 where there are some center right commentators that you can probably conjure up uh, in your imagination the actual people who seem to have adopted the alternative slogan, uh, only enemies to the right. And these are people who uh, I think in most cases very cynically uh, maintain their kind of fake status as conservative commentators who uh, go on MSNBC and just constantly denounce, uh, backbite um, and criticize uh, their supposed allies on the right. Uh, I've concluded after observing this for a long time that I think it's uh, primarily disingenuous. And so uh, I think that there is perhaps a, a, a justifiable um, uh, uh, suspicion or frustration. And so how, how would you respond to, 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 to that um, and to, I think, legitimate concerns that the opposite principle seems to be in play and seems to do damage not just to these you know, fringe figures whom, whom I think we can all condemn, but to well-meaning, um, uh, totally within the bounds of, of, of polite society conservatives who are uh, at, at often the receiving ends of these disingenuous, you know, supposedly center-right attacks.
2: So I, I sympathize with that sentiment that, yes, there are sort of token conservatives on MSNBC who do nothing but blast conservatives. And the question is, well, in what sense are you actually conservative? To be conservative is to be primarily concerned that the left is wrong and conservatives are right. So if you train all your firepower on the right, then you're not really concerned primarily about the woke left, say. Uh, but I, like I said at the beginning, I'm not claiming we have to constantly gatekeep. I'm not claiming we have to get social value and validation from the left. None of that is true. I think we can certainly triage uh, threats. We don't have to insist that every time the left calls us racist or bigoted, we have to you know scream and cry and denounce someone to our right. None of that's true. But remember that Charles' original essay was very categorical. He said, we see that any firepower directed at the right is necessarily antithetical to the goal of destroying the left. Any. And this is why it's confusing when he says things like he calls Rod Dreher odious. He calls, in one of his essays, he calls uh, William F. Buckley a Judas. Uh, He's sort of constantly saying things to denigrate people that are on the right. That's actually
1: several essays. I call him a Judas, but who's counting? Right.
2: But so the question then would be for me, Charles, well, couldn't the left turn around and run an expose in the New York Times saying prominent right wing figure blasts fellow right wing figure? They could stir up trouble that way. So. In some sense, it's almost like, well, what does it mean to say no enemies on the right if you're going to go out in public constantly denouncing people like uh, Ro- Roger Scruton and and uh, Rod Dreher and and other conservatives and denouncing them as odious and traitors and Judas and uh, worthless allies as you've called. Well,
1: this, before. this this is a gross exaggeration. I'm sorry to jump in, Chris, but I'll keep. I'll shut up. If yeah, you, no, if you tra- want Charles,
0: please respond because I think there is. There is a point. If you are are adopting the principle of no enemies on the right, but seem to be directing much of your fire at other figures on the right, are you violating, in a sense, your own principle?
1: Yeah, that's it. But the 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 summation is false. For example, you mentioned Scruton, and I, I do not, in fact, attack Scruton. I attack scrutinism, which is something that I regard as some of his philosophy. But I have the highest respect for Roger Scruton, and in fact to go do a quick drive by and vocal. My definition of the left, I actually took from Roger Scruton as I often say, and just that you can find, you know, the enlightenment is not everything I like from the 18th century. It's a set of principles that are applied, first applied in the French revolution and uniformly applied ever since then by the left. And just because, you know, Kant mumbled in German some other things doesn't mean that that is not the core of the enlightenment project as it relates to the left. And so I I don't attack Roger Scruton I don't even attack Dreher. Dreher is the one who attacked me and he runs around lying about me all the time when he's not blocking me on Twitter and canceling my Substack, so he can lie more freely to his Substack followers about me. So I don't. And Judas is, in fact, a term I use for Buckley because he was a Judas. He betrayed the conservative movement. Well, because I've been alive for, you know, I'm 55. And so I've been around for William F. Buckley. And it's obvious in retrospect that what he did was harm the conservative movement. But those are exceptions. I don't spend my days attacking anybody uh, on the right those are all just things that have been picked, cherry picked out and attempt to make this claim that I'm attacking people on the right it's just that, that's just just not true I mean I, I you know I've read all of Neil's stuff and I, I respect Neil but Neil you know you say these things about King David uh, for example and Nathan and what have you but the analogy to King to Nathan rebuking King David is not that Nathan, rebuked King David because King David did something bad. And of course, public back then meant something totally different. The analogy would be if Nathan attempted to overthrow King David so the Philistines could then take over the throne of Israel in order to, and he attacked King David in order to signal to the Philistines that he was really on their side. That's a much better biblical analogy. So anyway, that's my, my thoughts
2: on that. Can I just chime in quickly? I think this is why it's so important to focus on that that, that categorical any. You wanted to limit to, to remove any contentious discussion with those on the right wherever exactly they may fall on the spectrum all rebukes should instead be done privately and be strictly tactical but that's when we say I am not. Yeah, I agree if you want to change the definition of netter to say well, we shouldn't actually try to destroy people's livelihoods and, and ruin their lives I'd say yeah well, amen to that in anyone I don't want to go around ruining people's lives on the left or the right and destroying them and making them starve in the streets that's fine that's a different definition. And I do think that, you, you know, you have had critiques of people on the right. Um, I have a series of just tweets here and articles that you wrote criticizing various people that are on the right. And again, I'm not criticizing you for that. I, well, I think we need to welcome that kind of robust public disagreement and even contentious, especially when it's a really serious issue, of evil ideas. I think we should welcome those kind of open critiques and like we're all man enough to take it. And if they want to defend their beliefs, then they should do it publicly like we do. And it doesn't mean destroying them. I'm, I'm actually behind no destruction <laughs> of anyone. I'm just not behind this desire to hide or, or ignore or even silently approve or give a wink to evil. I, I think that's unbiblical. And uh, one last thing I'll say is that you, I think, obviously, you're much more politically involved than I am. But I'm far more concerned about individual people than about political movements. And so you might be right that there is no hugely popular, vastly powerful right wing figure who's going to destroy our country and he's a white nationalist. OK, that might be the case. But there are at a smaller level individuals in every church who are following these bad right wing ideas and we need to speak up about those ideas and even about those people like Andrew Tate say, and that does affect us all personally. I have personally seen it in, in good churches where young men especially are being led astray, which is why we can't say I'll never publicly give any contentious just the criticism of people on the right. That's just not biblical.
0: And, and, and Michael, you have your hand up. Can you, you want to quickly follow up on that?
4: Yeah, I want I want to follow up on just a couple of things here, if I could, real quick. Um, test. You're you're on. You're on. Okay, perfect. Because it's not showing on my phone here. Okay, so um, yeah, I, I was with Neil. I was I was I was I was sitting there listening to Charles call people odious and call people Judas and saying, "Wow, this sounds like Ocheter. Only Charles has enemies to the right, uh, and that seems to me to be like. A little bit of – it seems a bit – I don't want to say disingenuous, but it seems a little bit absurd to be able to say, look, uh, I'm going to attack people and call them a Judas and do so publicly, but I don't have enemies to the right. That sounds like an absurdity. The second thing is that there's this repeated insinuation that anybody who might attack someone to the right is doing it to virtual signal to the left. I have a stupid bird avatar. My name is Vocal Distance. I smoke a hookah when I do my, my podcasts, and I almost always do nothing but attack the left at all times. I'm not concerned about virtual signaling to anybody. I've never been given a penny. It's absurd. It's this sort of um, competition for status in a space where you are motivated by trying to make yourself look good to the left, where I, being based and trad and everything else, am free from the constraints of the leftist Overton window, and therefore I don't need to do those sorts of things. That's a sword that cuts both ways. It's really easy for me to turn around and say, the reason that you say, well, I don't care about racists, so the reason that you say or might adopt an edgy or a spicy opinion might be to signal to people to to do your own form of virtue signaling. And I really think that kind of thing is kind of absurd. I'd rather stick to the facts of the argument, but I wasn't going to let that slide. And then the second part is the left did this, the no enemies to the left thing, and the crazies took over. In the name of gaining power, the moderate liberal left decided to make peace and to wink and nod at their crazies on their left and not talk about them because we don't want to throw a bone to the right. And you saw this from a lot of these liberal types, particularly in the 2010s, but even through the 80s and 90s, you saw this all the time. And the result was that the most extremist elements and the fringe craziest parts of the left took over absolutely everything. That's part of how they were able to take over the institutions. I mean, there's a reason why you can't I mean Black Lives Matter. One of the women that sits on the lo- on the board of Black Lives Matter bombed the Capitol building. One of the founders of the women's march was Rasmia Oda, who was a terrorist. One of the reasons that the the Iranian government, or who was it, that a terrorist group kidnapped 11 Israelis in the 70s during the Olympics was to get her free, and she helped lead the Women's March and helped write an op-ed that wound up in the New York Times. This happens because they don't gatekeep. And And then, to use my analogy... Well, you say the yeast through the bread or whatever it is, the poison works its way through the whole bloodstream. The whole thing becomes corrupted. And so because they took this strategy, precisely because they took the no enemies to the left strategy, the craziest elements in their party on the left took over the entire left. And and the finally, finally, we have to remember that we have to deal with incentives here. Incentive structure things. Are, are we going to be incentivized toward truth or are we going to be incentivized toward power? If we're going I, to, I think that's a good, a good question. Maybe we yeah. could
0: pr- propose it to, to Nate. I mean, it's one interpretation of uh, No Enemies to the Right is that it's a, a, a kind of purely pragmatic uh, construction designed to uh, achieve political <laughs> success. I think that's how Charles outlined it. Um, uh, or um, uh, is it oriented towards some other value? Can it be oriented towards the pursuit of truth or the pursuit of uh, the common good? Um, uh, you know, h- How do you see it, and how would you respond to the criticism that it is untethered from moral considerations?
3: So I'll, uh, I'll go back to the, the point I made earlier, which is this is about enemies. This isn't about who we elevate. This isn't about who we follow. This isn't about who we even agree with. This is about who we try to destroy. And Woko made the point earlier that uh, why do we not apply the same principle reciprocally to the left, try to persuade people? I don't know that we don't. In many cases, it's actually prudent for us to try to engage people uh, on their terms and persuade them. Uh, Why do we why are we forced to treat the left as an enemy in a way that is not analogous to the right? We're forced to treat the left as an enemy because the left is trying to destroy us. The left. Occupies great power, and they are trying to destroy our way of life. So we we treat them as an enemy to a large extent by necessity, and as a result, we focus on the enemy who actually has a lot of power. I'll go to a point that Neil made, which I thought was a really a really good one here, which is he specifically says he's not trying to destroy anyone on the right; he just wants to disagree with them. Uh, I think disagreement makes a lot of sense. Uh, we want to uh, we we want to argue over vision, but I think we need to be aware of the dynamics of an environment that is left dominated in a world dominated by the left any left aligned accusation against anyone on the right essentially acts as a weapon of mass destruction that threatens to destroy them if you accuse someone you may be disagreeing with people within a church about certain things but if you go and you publicly accuse them of racism that can destroy their life that can get them fired from their job that can get them uh, that can get them ostracized from society it's essentially Uh, The nature of essentially we have to be sensitive to the fact it's kind of like it's kind of like making an accusation if you're in East Germany, uh, making an accusation in an internal argument that will get someone arrested by the Stasi and sent to the Gulag. Like they may be wrong. There may be real problems with what they're doing, but you should be extremely sensitive to the fact that that anything you say against them in a world that is dominated uh, by people who do not share your moral compass uh, at all can result in vast disproportionate punishment. So I think that it, it's a question of prudence. We need to, we don't necessarily endorse what they say. We need to figure out how to have these debates, but we need to, ha- we need to figure out how to have these debates in a way that is not, uh, essentially not facilitating gross and disproportionate evil against people uh really against anyone, particularly people who might be in our camp in some capacity, uh, and, and essentially aim for a prudential good. So part of aiming for a prudential good is actually avoiding injustices like that, uh, which in a world that we don't control, in a world where the penalties are controlled by people who are uh, broadly hostile to us, it is a tough balance. It's uh, it's often hard to maintain that.
0: Yeah, I, I think that there is uh, certainly some sympathy if you're if you're talking about someone who is, uh, you know, a local average person in a church somewhere, uh, and unleashing the the full force of the left wing uh, media activism, you know, to destroy their dry cleaner, to destroy their, uh, you know, small church group. It seems like there is uh, 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 some justified sympathy, and we require some justifiable prudence to say that opening a, an individual that is you know relatively powerless to, to destruction should only you know should, should either you know let's say not be done or done with e- extreme caution but I think there's a more challenging dynamic at play it's not uh, protecting or shielding the relatively powerless for their from from destruction but in fact we see um, uh, the right in my view uh, not to inject my personal opinion too much into it but there are people that are embraced by the right um, uh, uh, and not criticized by the right that actually have uh, large platforms, have a lot of power, and I think some of those names that we we've come up with today are instructive. You had, uh, you know, the Richard Spencer and the alt right uh, was, you know, very uh, prominent in media. You have Andrew Tate, which who somehow has uh, become a kind of uh, a supposed ally to the right, even though I think that his actual point of view, his, I mean, he's a, you know, a pimp, pornographer, uh, should be, should, should be uh, antithetical to any kind of conservative philosophy. Uh, and then you had Kanye West, who became uh, another uh, symbolic figure on the right, uh, just utterly self-destruct into kind of paranoid ravings. And so these are not powerless people. And these are all three people who have, it, it's not an unfair uh, 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 criticism. I mean, they're they open themselves up to significant criticism. I mean, fundamental criticism. So how would the advocates of no enemies on the right handle these people who cannot be looked at as helpless uh, victims or powerless in, in a larger media e- ecosystem, but in fact uh, have, have garnered uh, large audiences on the right, even though I think that their, their, their ideology, their ideas, their behavior Um, you know, should be antithetical to any responsible conservative movement.
1: Yeah, I'll take that. It's the, I think the key is in, again, back to the very beginning where I gave a definition of enemies, enemy as an existential person who attempts to destroy your way of life. And uh, I think that it's entirely true. I mean, Tate is a perfect example. Uh, I I don't understand why anyone has any uh, palatability for, for Tate, I mean, I do understand why he's attractive to young men. Uh, I understand that very well. It's 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 quite clear. But I don't I don't think that someone who is properly educated and informed should have any resonance with Tate. I think Tate is a good example too, because the we talk about Spencer. Really, a, a huge amount of the the question of who's unpleasant or unacceptable on the right revolves around race, and that, that is both true in, in a theological and a non theological, theological way. And I think so Tate is a good person to to focus this on because he he doesn't have a racial element to his, to his platform. Yet most people who are well-formed, the vast majority, I would think would say that his views are not the kind of views that we want uh, on the right. If the right has political power, but the right doesn't have political power. And Tate is not in fact an enemy in that sense, because he doesn't have any power in the sense of being able to deny the way of life of people on the right. It, he may be a problem if your son is attracted to him and is spending money on his cam girls and uh, thinks that Tate's view of women is the, is the proper view of women. Uh, but the, he's not an enemy in that same sense. So again, the, the, the issue there is that you're not going to attempt to destroy him you're going to attempt to undercut his ability to ruin people that you are close to and you're going to otherwise going to ignore him but because the much more important goal is destroying the left because the left is actually here to destroy you whereas andrew tate is here to make a bunch of money and have a cool instagram account the, he is not the enemy the left is the enemy that doesn't mean we can't spend some time being uh, attempting to alleviate any difficulties that Tate may cause us. But the the distinction between enemy and not enemy is an absolutely crucial distinction.
0: Okay, well, we're now at the top of the hour. So let's take some uh, brief comments and questions from the audience. We now have uh, more than a 1000 people uh, in the space, uh, including some uh, some great folks uh, in the conservative world, and then also some uh, some surprises uh, from the left. So, Love to get a range of comments, but let's start with uh, Indian Bronson, uh, who has been uh, in the space the whole time. And uh, and if you guys can just keep your comments uh, brief, uh, uh, and uh, I'll be uh, moderating after about a minute or so if you start to, uh, to ramble. IB, take it away. All right. Indian Bronson, you can uh, unmute and uh, and and fire
6: away. Hey, thanks. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, so, I, you know, my, my, my political views are no uh, <laughs> they're, 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 they're no seeker, Right. I mean, you can just go and read everything that I read on Twitter. Uh, you know, I am may maybe a little bit too open with the things that I believe um you know the, the, this question is one that I've, I've thought about for a long time um yeah you know, I, I just want to offer you know a little bit of comment there, there's actually an interesting circumstance here where uh, i don't know if it's the real account of this actual person um uh but you know there's this guy uh you know michael Cirillo, who now goes by sarah ashton Cirillo. um you know where a wig um you know. he's actually in the
0: space he's, yeah, right he's now. actually
6: in the space you know sarah slash michael hello junior sergeant um you know, uh, you know, of, of all the things that actually um, produced, you know, a sort of micro cancellation, a statement by the Ukrainian military, um, you know, it was it was this guy's uh, pronouncement that, uh, you know, you know, Russian sympathizing journalists would feel the wrath of, of the Ukrainian defense forces. Right. And, you know, you know if if you talk to the average ukrainian um and you know I- indeed there are many ukrainians in diaspora many russians in diaspora in the us you know you'll find is that basically none of them actually believe in transgenderism none of them think that any of this is real you know the the median value of the of, of a ukrainian national the me- the median political values social values cultural values are actually deeply far right you know compared to like sort of the median online internet reddit you know Supporter like uh, you know Michael Cirillo or, or anyone else, um, you know why? Why did the Ukrainian government feel like it had to say something? Well, because in the United States, defense funding, um, you know, essentially a lot of a lot of foreign policy credibility, you know, this all hinges on.
0: Ivy, can you get it? Get can you tie it up with the no enemies to yeah, the right you know, just no, so no, we can
6: it hinges on an apparatus that was built by conservatism, right? You know, even though foreign policy adventurism, you know, may be engaged in by the left, it was something that was ultimately built on by the right. And what the Ukrainian government understood is that it, it looks really bad to have a transsexual saying this stuff, right? That kind of cancellation, you know, when the right engages in cancellation of its quote own radicals. Who is the audience that they're performing for? The Ukrainian government had a very good reason to say Sarah Ashton Cirillo, junior junior sergeant, Sarah Ashton Cirillo, Michael, obviously, he's a man. You know, they had a very good reason to try and cancel him because they're ultimately performing for an audience in Washington, many of whom are Republican senators and congressmen who have constituents that it would be very hard to justify an insane transsexual to what is the actual audience of people who want to try and say, oh, you know, we better cancel these people who are evil and bringing bad ideas into the right. I mean, there, there's no real special dispensation, right, right, uh, that, that you're hoping to get from the left who's actually funding you. Let ideas win and die on their own merits, Um, I I was kind of disturbed by something Vocal Distance said, where he's like, well, these ideas, you know, they have purchase because it's a social movement. Well, you know, let ideas have purchase because it's a social movement. If ideas are actually not so good and not so true, then they'll be revealed as that in time. If they are actually kind of true, well, then you need to engage with them. And, you know, so I, you know, I, I bring this up only to point out that, like, you know, we should at least be as sensible as the Ukrainian government. Uh, finally, saying uh, n- no thanks uh, to kind of deranged trannies. Um, you know, if 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 we can't be at least as sensible as them, uh, you know, it's just it's hopeless. That's that's all. I want. All right, all right. So let's. Uh, Can I respond? Thanks for your comments. Uh, comments and well, to sense.
0: Yeah, let's give a response and and uh, keep it tidy
4: Well, to keep it brief, I don't think we go around destroying people for an audience that was never the claim my claim is that you remove diseased minds from your leadership and the reason that you move diseased minds from your leadership is because you don't want bad ideas to be able to work their way through your movement and people with diseased minds wrecked things that was the point i'm not performing for anyone Nor do I think that we go around aiming the death star of social media criticism and the entire apparatus that the left has built on people working at Home Depot because they have some sort of odious view. What I'm talking about is people who are setting themselves up to be influential or in leadership positions on the right are rife for criticism and for removal from their movement. You might say, well, let ideas win. Well, When I go and I decide or someone decides to hire me to work at an institution, they're not going to go out and say, well, we're going to wait till the peer-reviewed literature has decisively decided whether your ideas are good or not. No, they're going to make a judgment about me. They're going to make a judgment about my ideas and then hire me or fire me based on my ideas. And my point is I think that when we deal with people who bring in odious ideas, who are bringing in bad ideas – we're, we're allowed to fire them from our institutions for having horrible ideas. That's part of how ideas win and lose. But that doesn't mean that we go around, say, making it impossible for them to get a job or to run a software company or to make microchips or whatever it is they're doing. That's not the point. No, the left will okay. do that for you if you attack them.
0: So let's go to another another uh, uh, audience member. Logan Hall has been uh, on the line. So... Uh, Logan, uh, uh, fire it out. You got a a statement or a question, and uh, make sure to keep it uh,
7: timely. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Okay, yeah, I'll keep it brief. Um, I'm definitely more in the Haywood and Nate camp here. Um, I just want to ask, like, the opponents of No Enemies to the right, like, it's fine. It's good that we're having debates like this, but let's talk practical, like, historical, political applications here. If you are in... Uh, the midst of a communist takeover, which I'd, a lot of people on our side would say the left is doing to America right now, if you have a figure like Franco or Pinochet rise, um, what would be your position on that person? Uh, this is a good question,
0: and 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 let's go to uh, to Neil for this. And and if I can rephrase the question, it's saying. If there is an exigency and you come to a, dile- a kind of classical dramatic dilemma, meaning a, a choice between uh, uh, two evils, let's even say, or a choice between two undesirable, non-ideal uh, political figures, um, does that uh, change the calculus? And, and in that uh, situation, Neil, um, what would you do?
2: So I would actually agree that, you know, all politics is a choice of the lesser between two evils. We're all evil. Christianity says we're all sinners. And so we're always going to elect a sinner, no matter what, what kind of sinner, you what know, degree of sinner. It's the only choice, really. So, you know, if, if someone, a strong man on the right arose who's going to overthrow wokeness, um, it would be a question of, well, how's he going to do that? you going to execute a million people that are woke? Well, then I'm not going to support him. I'm going to say that's this is evil. Is he simply going to like fire a bunch of people from their cushy leftist academic jobs? I'll support him in doing that. But the thing is, what I will not do ever is simply wink at his evil. I will not say, well, he's on the right. He's fighting the good fight. I'm I'm therefore going to just give him a free pass. I'm going to speak up and say, hey, I support what he's doing. I support his, say, approaching institutions of really terrible ideas. I support him defunding these really corrupt agencies, whatever it is if I do support them. But I'm not going to then turn around and say, well, but since he's doing these good things, I'm going to wink at all the terribly evil things he does. This is my entire point. Christians just have to call it as they see it. They have to oppose evil where they see it, prudentially. We don't have to go searching and snooping around to be become balanced and, oh, I'm a moderate. I'm, I'm neither right nor left. It's fine to say I'm conservative. I'm on the right. But it does not give anyone a free pass to say whatever they want.
1: Well, I think the question, Well, that's a fair response, the, the question, you've basically taken the heart out of the question. You know, when we're talking about people like Franco or Pinochet or even Salazar, people, you know, authoritarian right-wing leaders who destroyed communists who would have killed 30, 40, 50, 100 times the people that they did, but they did kill people. They killed people you know, justly. They killed people unjustly. And, and that's just a historical fact. But they saved a lot more people than they killed. Would you, in that circumstance, would you prefer, if you were in in 1933 Spain, would you have preferred Franco or would you have preferred the Popular Front, Neil?
2: Yeah, I can't comment on 1930s Spain because I'm a theoretical chemist by training, so I'll have to (laughs) give that to this point. Let me me, me
1: quantify. Would you prefer a right-wing authoritarian who unjustly kills 10,000 men or a communist who unjustly kills a million people?
2: I mean, of course, I would prefer the people, that, the, the leader that kills the fear people, right? That said, you, so absolutely. Yeah, you just pick, you're like, that's their only choices. It's a philosophical trolley problem. I get it. I would go with a smaller amount. But that said, you better believe that when he's unjustly executing 10,000 people, I will be out there with a bullhorn screaming, this is evil. <laughs> I, that, I will not say, well, he's doing, he's doing a utilitarian good overall, the best possible. So I'm, I'm not going to just pu- be quiet and let him do his thing. I'm going to say this is wrong and evil, and I will speak up and I will not just again wink because you're on quote unquote my side. All right, let's I
4: go think... to
0: the next. Let's go to the next commenter. Let's uh, let's bring on astral flight. Astral flight, uh, uh, welcome, and uh, you know keep it uh, keep it concise. If you want to talk, you have to unmute, or we'll go to the next. How about uh, Jeff, Jeff Giusea, uh, who, who I, I believe is a, is a critic. Uh, so Jeff, if you'd like to offer your uh, point of view, you can unmute and,
7: uh, and let it rip. Sure, thanks for having me on, Chris. And thank you guys for the civil discourse. I really respect that. Uh, my question is, you know, foreign influence is a problem in our country and on the right. And would you tolerate Gal Luft and Guo Wenxi, you know, foreign influence agents who are abusing the American public you know, but ostensibly on the right. I mean, personally, I would say no. And I think the whole framing of the discussion and granted, you know, I've evolved. I think I've moved more towards the center. You guys, some of you guys who know me have probably see that. And part of that story is what I realize is that I don't know if left, right is the right frame for friend, enemy distinction for me. For me, it's evolved. And I know this might sound a little bit pat, but like, are you for do you want America to work or do you not want it to work? And I kind of want it to work. Right. Um, so I guess my question is, like, I, I just see think the whole framing of the discussion is, is sort of flawed. And I'm very curious, like, would you actually tolerate foreign influence agents actively in this country just because they're on your side?
0: That's a good question. And, and I think maybe we could pose that question um, to, to Charles or and Nate. Um, does no enemies on the right uh, include, um, you know, p- potential allies uh, from from foreign countries, or is there a delineation or an exception for kind uh, of national boundaries, national origin?
1: That's a good question. I don't. I wasn't familiar with those names you mentioned. They sounded Chinese. Uh, I'm not sure who we're talking about. But I
0: think he means the gentleman who was bankrolling. Uh, Steve Bannon, I, I believe it's Miles Kwok. Uh,
1: Sorry, it d- doesn't wrong. ring any bells, but but doesn't matter. I mean, it, it, it's a fair question because this is a nation and you certainly the regime that rules us is illegitimate procedurally and substantively, but it's still, you know, they, it, this is still a nation with it, it still has laws that operate some of the time. Yeah, we have a lot of political prisoners now and probably more than East Germany had in 1989, but, you know, it's, st- it's still a nation. And I don't think people can go around If there are people who are enemies of the United States, which is our nation, I don't think people on the right should be allying with those people either publicly or sub Rosa in order to advance destroying the left simply because this is a nation and you have to have some set of set of boundaries.
0: Okay, great. All right, let's go to some other uh, commenters. How about Brian Chow? Um, I'm going to add you. As a speaker, if you want to unmute and, uh, and make your comment or ask your question, just make sure to keep it uh, concise. OK, looking like uh, we might be having some, uh, some technical difficulties or stepped away. Um, you know, I, I think that one of the questions that I have been considering is one of basic coalition management. And so, you know, anyone who has spent the time in a large organization will realize immediately uh, that sometimes there is addiction through subtraction. And I think political movements, that's even more important because political movements, uh, both left and right, uh, center, ha- always attract people um, who are uh, interested in power, who are, um, you know, uh, who have uh, the desire to, to, uh, to dominate or to manipulate or to exploit um, this is something inherent to, to politics because of what it is. Um, and one limitation, perhaps, of No Enemies to the Right is that you, uh, you do not have a sufficient way to, to add through subtraction. And in fact, um, subtracting certain factions, certain ideologies, and even certain individuals from a political movement can, can create on the other side much more uh, uh, goodwill, a larger number of supporters. Um, and uh, you know, you, even if you talk to folks who run political campaigns, one of the campaigns that I worked on years ago, one of the grizzled campaign managers said, oh, you got to figure out who your closet people are. I was like, what does that mean? Uh, and he said, well, these are the people that if you put them out door knocking are going to alienate every voter. So you, you put them in the closet and make them, you, know, uh, uh, you, you can't just kick them out. You have to make them kind of have make work jobs to keep them out of the public eye. And so how does No Enemies to the Right, aid? Um how can you do addition through subtraction if, if you're not having a process of public criticism and also you know, public disaffiliation?
3: So I'll, uh, I'll return to an early point I made, which is I think one of the central projects on the right today is building. It's not just, uh, it's not just fighting. How do you gain political legitimacy as a leader? And if we are ever going to succeed as a movement, we gain political legitimacy through building something attractive, building something effective and attractive. I mean, the the classic line, keep the uh, trains running on time. Uh, But also, uh, uh, also through offering an attractive vision. And in some ways, successfully defending people against the left. I would say the most important thing by far that people on the right who are concerned about uh let's call it suboptimal to bad actors rising can do is they can build they can focus on being more effective uh being more effective at defending people from the left uh if you have a political leader who successfully de- if you have a governor who defends citizens of his state from the left who wins battles against the left people will follow him if you have a uh, if you have an entrepreneur who builds a company that people find attractive, let's say it's an, it's a company that offers a uh, important alternative in a category that's dominated by the left, he will have a lot of constituency. will have legitimacy by virtue of that. So, the but if you're building important- a business,
0: though, to get to the to get to the question, if you're building a business, one of the most important things you do as an executive uh, is firing people uh, who who are no longer a fit for the the corporation. And so what is the process politically? What is the analog? Every great uh, chief executive knows that sometimes you have to uh, terminate the employment of people who, who jeopardize the mission of the company as a whole. What is the process yeah. for doing that in the political coalition?
3: Well, so if you're actually running, I'm talking about real institutions and real organizations here. If you're running an institution or organization, 100%, you can choose who you want on your team and who you, who you don't want on your team. Firing someone does not mean treating them as an enemy. Firing them simply means firing them. It means removing them. It means removing them from a position of power that you stirred. So absolutely if you run something, you have the authority to decide who is in and who is out it, particularly in positions of authority, particularly in positions of responsibility. So the best thing you can do is you can build effective organizations and you can grow their scope of influence within the movement and you can elevate people who are both good, who are both effective and who are virtuous. And you will gain influence in the coalition. I, t- I see a lot of attention from people decrying, uh, decrying people they, don't, they, they dislike rather than trying to outdo them. It's like you saw this in the Never Trump movement. You know, a lot of people spent their time attacking, attacking Trump. A lot of Christians decried him as being uh, supposedly an immoral, this sort of grossly immoral man. Uh, and yet none of them were as effective at challenging political correctness in the country and taking it head on. Uh, as he was many of them lacked the courage to ever do that and so they he gained a natural legitimacy by being willing and capable to take that stand against something that was widely recognized as a threat i think people people would do well to spend way more time thinking about how they can effectively fight the left and I'll, i'll 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 give i'll i'll use you as an example you I don't know where you formally come down on this question of no enemies to the right, but you have an enormous amount of legitimacy in the movement, enormous amount of credibility in the movement because you've been effective at fighting the left. People follow you. You can decide who you want to elevate and who you don't want to elevate. And you can exclude people uh, from uh, giving them influence whose views you find abhorrent. And you've earned that right as someone who has effectively won battles against the left. Uh, and I've noticed you I haven't seen you ever attack people to the right. You haven't needed to direct your guns at people to the right to be able to gain that influence. So I think that's a model that far more people should follow. And if more people on the right spent their time focused on those questions rather than I, rather than these questions of who to exclude, our movement would be in far better shape.
0: Well, of course I, 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 I'll, I'll take the compliment. And, uh, you know, my own, my own belief is that, uh, you know, those who would cynically attack people on their right to advance their personal career interests or uh, renew their MSNBC contracts or to solicit uh, the billionaire bucks uh, from, you know, the, the Bulwark or, you know, Bill Crystal, uh, That is done um, not oriented towards the common good, towards the advancement of the conservative movement. Uh, and towards any higher principle, it's actually done quite cynically. And so I think that is an easy case, uh, where that can be, uh, and, and should be force, for, forcefully uh, rejected. And I know I've had to deal with those kinds of criticisms. Um, uh, and, and so I, I feel quite sympathetic. Um, let, let's take some other, you know, before we get to Neil, who has his hand up very patiently, let's take some speakers. I have uh, Kruptos, who actually has written an essay on this, as I was researching, what people were saying about No Enemies to the Right. Uh, Kryptos had uh, an essay that, uh, that you can, you, you, I would recommend you read, uh, quite forceful. Um, so, Kruptos, why don't you uh, share your point of view um, with, with the audience? We now have more than 1,000 people listening here in the space.
8: Well, thank you for, for giving me the opportunity to speak. Um, one of the, the problems here, I think, that we run into is that we approach this whole problem of No Enemies to the Right from a managerial perspective. In a sense, we want to write a policy that can absolve us of guilt in our actions. And so we're looking to find sort of the perfect formula, the perfect you know um, diagram of these are the right situations, these are the right people, we can itemize them off, and then we can fob off responsibility. And in some ways, you, you can't really fight managerialism with managerialism. So in many ways, what we're really looking for is a new kind of person. So. Um, you know, Neil was quoting scripture and so forth. You know, if if you look at like say what Josiah did um, at the you know in his reign in terms of, of battling his nation, um, it's it's fairly bloody, and um, you know there is a passage in Proverbs um, twenty six four and five where the first passage says um, correct a fool or you you know don't correct a fool lest you get into his folly and the very next verse says correct a fool um, lest he remain in his folly. And so you ask the question, well, why do you have two opposite verses right back to back? Well, it gets at the nature of wisdom. Sometimes in these moral questions, you won't know the answer until you get there. And so even Neil himself was saying, well, we want people to be right. We want people to be good. We want to always pursue rightness. And then he came back and said, well, you know, not every choice is good or evil. Some choices are between the lesser evil and the greater evil. Well, the lesser evil is still evil. And sometimes, you know, in terms of, and this is why the, 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 the priest, the pastoral role is different from the role of the magistrate, because the magistrate has the power of the sword. And sometimes the power of the sword means you have to do hard things. And sometimes you have to keep, you know, in some sense, almost like bad or ugly people on a short leash because you need a rabid dog from time to time. And sometimes your rabid dog has to be put down. Now it's it's a hard thing but you know Jacques Ellul talked about this this nece- this idea of doing what is necessary in a sinful world. And in his book Violence he says a lot of times we want to take the position of the high road and that makes us either ineffectual or hypocritical. And Ellul says oftentimes we want to take the high road because it's easier. So for example take the pro life movement, right? We want to be seen as being pro life. But he says, you know, you got what 60 million babies who have been killed? And you think of how many people died in the Holocaust. So wars have been started for less. So in a sense, are we really serious about ending abortion? In a sense, maybe blowing up abortion clinics. You know what I mean? Going to war with the abortionists. Or do we just want to be on the high road and always be on the high road and take what victories we can get? And no enemies to the right is a recognition that the exigencies of power sometimes require you to do hard things and to work with bad people and to actually do the lesser evil, which is still evil. And that's so really what you're looking for is a wise leader who can be trusted with that kind of power, I guess. And that's what I, that was, that was basically over two essays kind of point that I made, I think as quick as I can make it here in this space. Again, thanks.
0: Okay. Let's, let's go to another, uh, commenter, Athenian stranger, uh, who is a, uh, uh, a student of philosophy, and I'm, I'm very excited to get his perspective uh, before we get some more feedback from the uh, four panelists.
5: Yeah, th- <clears throat> thanks so much for the mic, uh, Chris. Uh, one thing, and this sort of dovetails on what Kryptos had just mentioned there, um, in many respects, and so this is going to go back to uh, Vogel's apparent criticism of uh, Charles on understanding the Enlightenment, but I'm also going to be able to wrap uh, Neil up in this as well. Uh, in many regards, this is just basic Machiavelli 101. The problem with good men is that they're surrounded in a world of bad people, and so if you try to make these fundamental uh, principles your guiding uh, practice, uh, you're just going to fail. I mean, you might be able to, you know, go to sleep, you know, with a, a, a fine conscience, but that's not how war works. I mean, that's absolutely not how war works. And one of the things that we see this with regard to the Enlightenment, especially is that freedom itself becomes the telos or the purpose of human reason. And so with the democratization of Christianity on the on the eve of all of this that's happening at the same time, that gets spread into the Christianity itself. And so that's how it can come about that we're in a situation today where you have these tranny flags in the churches, is that we've had centuries now, a few centuries, of this very, very mistaken belief that somehow freedom and the good are, in many respects, the same. And you see this most especially with regard to the theologies at work, because what happens is that the characteristic of God as being understood as something good is elevated at the expense of the characteristic of God as something that's just. And so you'll have people like Wogel and Neil who will place all this emphasis on goodness, and they can look at things all day and talk about the morality of things, But you can barely ever hear them even recognize or understand what it means for something to be just and they can't look at justice in in many regards they can't even see it uh the goodness that the justice would bring about uh because they're 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 too squeamish Uh, they they just they can't fathom a god because they're so indebted uh to this mistaken understanding of their their morality which is grounded in their mistaken understanding of christian theology Uh, so that's the problem here and Going at it in a way that someone like Charles or Nate is doing is absolutely the correct way. I mean, just on a matter of, of how wars actually operate. But again, uh, this nonsense that Wokel that, uh, that was throwing at uh, Charles about the, <laughs> about the Enlightenment, uh, that is the problem. Charles is absolutely right about the Enlightenment. Uh, and I could go on about this for hours and hours because it's fundamentally in Locke. Uh, it's fundamentally in Kant. It's in Hegel. It's in every single one of the German idealists after that the idea that freedom somehow becomes the purpose or the telos of human reason itself and is itself the good. But what happens to justice along the way? Well, it has to get diluted. That's why all of these people have enormous sections of their masterpieces dedicated to criticisms of the Bible. I mean, look at Locke's second treatise of government. Uh, it's almost, almost the first half of it entirely is devoted to just critiquing the Bible, Hobbes similarly. So all of these things come into play. But Anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there because I think that really, really needs to be emphasized in this discussion. So let me give, thank you,
0: Athenian. Let me give Neil a chance uh, to respond. Neil.
2: Well, I would just say that uh, I don't discard God's justice, and I have a very traditional view of God's judgment and hell. And uh, I do think for the non-Christians listening, traditionally, Christianity does believe that God is both good and holy and just, and that... uh, That We all deserve condemnation, and that's why Christians cling so tightly to the cross of Jesus, because on the cross is how God can be both just and the justifier of those who trust in Jesus who paid for our sin. So we don't say that justice is bad. It's a good thing. We also know that all of us need mercy, not justice. If we get justice, we're all in trouble. Uh, But I wanted to go back and tie some things together that uh, Nate said, actually. He pointed out that we live in a left-dominated society. The media is largely, almost entirely controlled by the left, uh, academia is you know, sometimes 90%, 95%, 99% uh, progressive. And I think that needs to inform how we approach prudential considerations. So I've spoken almost entirely about morality and theological concerns I have with Netter. I wanted to circle back, though, and talk about pragmatics and coalition building, Chris, because you mentioned that. Um, so because the left is dominating the media and the elite power structures so, uh, placed in society, We have to acknowledge that when we go about our coalition coalition building, and especially when we go about critiquing things. So Charles said repeatedly that the reason that conservatives punch right, reason conservatives say things and criticize and cancel to their right, is because they're virtue signaling. They're trying to get accolades, they're trying to suck up to the left. Well, let me offer another possible motivation. You can prudentially punch right when someone actually deserves being punched, being criticized, because you realize that because of progressive dominance in the media, they're going to blow up all of your greatest faults and flaws a thousand times. full. it's totally unfair. But when you have some crazy far right leader who claims to be part of your movement, they're going to interview him a hundred times more often than they interview average rank and file, thoughtful, careful, uh, prudential, grounded conservatives. That's just the, the reality we're living in. Well, because of that, you, might, you actually should feel a special prudential concern to gatekeep your movement because you know you're going to be treated unfairly. If you're on the right, you're going to have the microphone thrust in the face of the worst possible people. So you don't have to be sucking up to the left. You have to just acknowledge the reality that you're going to have people in your coalition the left is going to pounce on, make them your poster children. So you have to say, definitely, we have to be extra careful to keep those people out of the public eye, out of our organizations, out of a place where they could do our movement harm. So I actually argue the sort of the opposite is true. That yes, it's unfair that we have to sort of gatekeep more uh, scrupulously than the left does. They can embrace radicals and we can't. But that's the reality of where we live. If we want to be effective and truly realistic about our politics, our prudence. We have to. Act, so all the more reason to keep the crazies that we actually don't like out of our leadership.
0: Okay. And Nate had his hand up. Nate, I'd like to give you a chance to respond before we go to other commentators. It looks like uh, prodigal is uh, in, 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 at the top of the queue. So we'll go to prodigal um, after we hear from Nate.
3: So I think Neil, Neil touches on a key tactical point. And I would say until we, until we can defeat that frame where the left gets to, decide what the discourse is, we are under their thumb and we're guaranteed to lose. We as a movement need to be independent and we need to train people that the left cannot control the discourse, that they cannot decide what associations, uh, a standard that they never apply to their own radicals, by the way, What, what, what associations are toxic and beyond the pale. And I think Americans are learning that. I think we're in a world where people are quickly growing tired of uh these tedious associational attacks. Uh they know that they're they know that they are no longer good faith. If if they believe that the left if someone believes the left's moral frame, they will accept that. Uh, most of the people we're trying to recruit don't believe the left's moral frame. They know the left uh they know the left does not have a moral compass. And so they're starting to realize that uh the left's standards applied to judge the right are uh Are increasingly meaningless so i I don't think we need to fear what neil says there as much as he says i think that we need to find what we really need to spend time doing is finding an alternative moral high ground uh, argument and i'll make I'll, i'll just quickly outline that which is we can take the high ground without fearing association uh with people who have views that we disagree with by recognizing uh first off that we're in pursuit of a moral cause if i believe i'm pursuing a moral cause I don't mind making common cause in some cases with someone who doesn't share all my views. I'm going to do that. I'm only going to do that if I believe and if I can articulate why I believe that is toward an end that is actually better and more virtuous than, the, than what the left is offering. And second of all, we know that people grow. People are, not, uh, people are not permanently attached to certain views. So if someone is wrong, you don't need to denounce, uh, ostracize or remove him. Uh, you can recognize that he's someone who may be developing his views and there's there's plenty of room to reason with people to our right i uh, there, there's plenty of re- there's plenty of opportunity to reason with people whose views we may not disagree with and move them in our direction i think that's a more attractive it, it's a it's a much stronger moral high ground one that recognizes grace one that recognizes uh the value of virtuous ends uh and, and that's that's an alternative view to the one the left imposes, where, uh, where such people impose a taint that we need to uh, run from or apologize for. So I think it's, it's putting forth our own moral high ground that justifies the nature of the coalition that we choose rather than uh, submitting to the left.
0: Well said, all right, let's go to some commenters. I said a prodigal would be able to speak and then we'll go uh, to, to Mark Granza from IM1776. IM uh,
9: prodigal, uh, you know, let it rip, and, uh, and be, be, be concise. Yeah, I'm going to try to be as concise as possible. Cut me off if you need to. I mean, I, I've heard a lot of non-serious arguments advocating we should focus our time, attention, and resources on attacking the right that really fail to, con- to confront the current state of the country, right? The U.S. is bleeding out culturally, economically, geopolitically, but if you listen to a number of people here, they think our attention should be divided from the true threat that's facing all of us even people on the left who don't realize what they're helping to achieve and that we need to waste our time and energy attacking figures to the right who have no power, no money, no real influence and no popular support. I keep on hearing about these leaders. I don't see them leading the party. All this does is further marginalize basically irrelevant actors while giving talking points to the left and their sycophants in government, media and all across the country who want to basically destroy us. So, I mean, at this time, you have to recognize the, the moment we're in and you strategize and prioritize the true dangers and threat to your very way of life, to your very existence. And, you know, for now, I firmly believe the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I might not agree with everybody to the right, but let's be honest, they have no power and I believe our ideas will win out. But when you say we need to divide our time, attention and focus just to give talking points to a corporate media who didn't care what the truth was for four four years to a federal government that's been weaponized against anybody who's patriotic or religious. I think it's just childless and it's non-serious. And this is the type of talk that's going to lead to our destruction. I mean, literally, you started the conversation. Some people saying the left did this and it's very effective. We are different than the left. We have priorities, but we have to recognize the state we're in. And after we gain some influence or control in the government, the institutions, culture, media, then we can deal with this. But to say this is something that we need to focus on or something that's a serious threat to us, it's a joke. And, and, and this is the exact, you know, thing that you, you don't understand the ruthlessness of your enemies and you're falling back on ideals that are impractical on dealing with the battle ahead. And, you know, I'll, I'll end with this. Like, you know, you share nothing in common with this enemy. They want to destroy you, your culture, your religion, everything you believe in. But you want to sit back on these ideals, let them weaponize your empathy against you. I believe the one speaker, Neil, you keep on speaking of Christian values. I see the Catholic Church and other other Christian groups; they have no problem with the border wide open, seven plus million illegals here, while Americans, uh, you know, the, the youth are the highest in home with their parents since the 1940s, paycheck to paycheck. The country is collapsing. So, where, uh, based on your religious uh, values, how do you feel about all these, you know, economic migrants? You know, they're not refugees. Right. Where do you land on this? Because the Catholic Church, a number of NGOs that claim to be religious, wholeheartedly embrace it. So I'm curious where you stand on this. And, uh,
0: prodigal uh, forcefully, uh, forcefully argued, Neil, um, uh, if you can respond in just two words, uh, you know, just a few words and then we'll go to Mark.
2: Well, yeah, I, I will say well, immigration, I do believe in secure borders. I don't think we should have open borders or porous borders. That's just not really relevant to what we're talking about tonight. Uh, but I do think the larger point that you're asking is, uh, why am I so focused on morality and theology? And I would just respond, not practical stuff, not actually getting into deep into politics and defeating our enemies. And I would just keep pressing on this point. I'm making a biblical argument. If you're not a Christian and you say, "Well, I don't believe the Bible," yeah, I'm not really speaking to you. I'm speaking to Christians who are committed to doing what the Bible says and just asking themselves, "Can I honestly say the Bible commend, commands me to ignore people that do sinful, evil, wicked things on my, if they're on my right? The Bible does not command that, and so I can't. I can't require it. And I have to actually reject it. That, that's what I have to say.
0: All right, and then uh, Mark Granza from I am IM I am seventeen seventy six. Uh, you actually hosted uh, some exchanges, including with your editor Daniel Miller, uh, an interview with with Charles Haywood that I thought was uh, quite insightful. Um, would love for, to hear uh, your
10: perspective. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Yeah, no, I, I generally agree with the uh, with the, uh, well, with the, you know the proposition of the, in favor of the unanimous to the right. You know, Charles made it pretty clear that um, the principle itself is, is more tactical than actually having any sort like more component to it but actually I have a, uh, might be a little bit of a segue or maybe like a backtrack a little bit because I, I, did, I actually didn't feel like it was properly addressed this, and it's something like I've been thinking about it for some time you now. we have been thinking about it with a publication and and like one of my impression that you know throughout this space and throughout this general debate in general like this this whole sort of like idea is usually taken from granted. I think it was uh, Neil just recently said that you know the left controls the uh um, the power networks and like one of the ideas that we've been of like considering and, and I think there are there is some evidence to this is that actually the power network in many, the power networks in many ways are controlling the left and and uh, so this in a way is like the the, um, the true believer question that I want to propose or that you know like I said I don't have the answer myself so I'm more curious to hear especially like someone like Charles and Nate think about this um, what is what um, is well is there the possibility that this like constant framing of these like um you know issues that we're facing as like left and right as it like strictly based in um on ideas themselves might miss the fact that might so sort of, like uh uh distract a little bit from the fact that in many cases we have this sort of like cynical power networks very Machiavellian very uh, obsessed with power that would uh, they are essentially weaponizing these uh ideologies and uh, you know mobilizing masses on the basis of ideas to further their you know uh, business networks and, and you know retain power so and like i said this is um you know the idea i don't have the answer myself you know it's something that like like chris said we also had a really good debate a few dialogues about this as well and every time i read those dialogues i i just can't make my make up my mind about this so i'm wondering What's normal, like Charles, and they Char- talk about is... Yeah, let's get I, Charles in on I, this, uh, and I think. Yeah, yeah sorry. I'm, no, no,
0: no. It's good. It's good. And and what I think we heard also from the some, last.
10: Uh, so, like, strategy to my question.
0: Uh, <laughs> so, done. What you, do. you need a hand roll another cigarette, my friend. Uh, but, uh, but uh, what what I think the last commenter also very forcefully um, argued was that the conditions uh, uh, necessitate um, some discipline and some focus, and so. Charles, you know, maybe you can uh, respond to that and also respond to uh, Mark Granz's question here.
1: Yeah, I, I, as far as the former commenter, the discipline and focus, I completely agree with with all that. So I don't, I don't really have have much to add. As far as as Mark's question, which I take to be, is ideology uh, really the thing we should be focusing on or focusing on largely exclusively? instead of other motivations that might be antithetical to our principles on the right? I think the answer is yes, ideology is the thing we should be focusing on, because I just I think while there are people who have non-ideological interests and some of those people are powerful, the in the modern world, ever since the poison of the Enlightenment began to seep into the body politic of the West in the 18th century, ideology has been the driving factor behind the vast majority of of major changes. It is simply not true, and you can find endless people who will say to the contrary, but they are just wrong, that the bankers did everything or the Jews did everything or you know the corporations do everything. Those things, are, while there are people who have business interests and attempt to gain financially from ideological turmoil and other kinds of turmoil that's driven by ideology, the fundamental distinction between whether in the year 2150, we can have a flourishing uh west or a flourishing globe more broadly but focusing on the west which is our civilization boils down to whether or not the left is still in power obviously in some new situation there will be people with other forms of power the, the right is not an ideology the left is an ideology so it'll be different but it's just no, i don't think it's the case that we need to focus on for example corporate power instead of instead of left ideology
4: okay okay
0: um and um let's go maybe to 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 wrap up um uh, we have one maybe one take one more commenter at the top of the queue is the prudentialist um at mr prudentialist um if you are there i think i have uh added you as a speaker um go ahead and you'll have the last uh, commenter slot if you're if you're there all right all right um Okay we have about 10 minutes left in the schedule for this space so uh, let's just do a round of closing statements. We'll follow uh, th- the same order uh, that we began. We'll go uh, Charles, you know one minute kind of closing statement uh, then to Neil then to Nate then to uh, Michael Young. Charles take it away.
1: I think this has been helpful at fleshing out some of the distinctions. I also think it's been helpful at, saying a lot of my claims that the arguments against Neoder, as I like to call it, instead of Netter, are mostly uh, straw man or historically inaccurate. Uh, or at least here, they've they been high level arguments as opposed to a lot of the kind of mendacious arguments you see otherwise. So I think this is very helpful in fleshing things out. I think it will be very helpful if people are interested in this to go particularly to the uh, IM 1776 colloquy I had with Daniel Miller That kind of kicked off this most recent round of discussion on here. And that does expand on some things we didn't really touch on. For example, Neil was complaining, uh, I think some justification that I kept emphasizing that virtue signaling was a key reason for people on the right to identify people on the right as enemies. And in fact, I list five or six other reasons why I think this is the, the, why I think this is done on the right. None of them are, of course, complimentary to the people doing it. They are not excuses. They are merely identification of reasons. But I think expanding the, the reading to that. I M 1776 article would help
2: flush things out as well.
0: OK, great. And let's go uh, to Neil for a one minute uh, closing statement.
2: Sure. Thanks, Chris. I also appreciated this conversation a lot. Thank you to Nate and uh, to Charles and to Michael for for doing it with me. I want to wrap up what I said, which is I just think that this whole idea that we cannot avoid any, we cannot engage in any public criticism of the right. We have to privately only have tactical discussions. We can't actually go to someone and say, hey, this is actually sin. This is evil. You need to reject this. Is just antithetical to the Bible's commands, and as a Christian, I have to go with what the Bible says. Now, could it could I be practically not choosing the optimal course? Maybe it could be practically optimal to lie and to to, to steal and to bribe justices to get your politics in charge. But I have to say, as a Christian, we can't do that. So I just encourage people: if you're not a Christian, if you're a Christian, ask what does the Bible have to say about how we engage in politics? What comes first, theology and morality, or pragmatism number one and then if you're not a christian obviously i have to say this as an evangelical christianity is true and uh, i i know that we're in a political space but i always want to say that what comes first is eternity and spiritual things and so i really want you guys to all uh, ask yourself While i'm considering politics and debating best tactics for our country ask yourself uh, uh, what's happening with my with eternity uh, our country's not going to be here forever guys no country is the hittite empire is gone <laughs> the egyptian empire is gone uh, but Christ's kingdom is eternal. So ask yourself where you stand with regard to that nation and the country. Thanks.
0: Nate Fisher, let's get your closing statement.
3: Yes, and thanks, uh, thanks for this conversation. Uh, so I'll go back to one of the underlying questions. Why do we have enemies at all? Uh, Lenin was repeated to say that you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And uh, I think this is, this is what we have to remember. I, uh, I built my career building businesses. It's still what I would rather do. I certainly don't wanna focus my energy on engaging in war of any sort and uh, much less war with other Americans. Uh, unfortunately, the left will not allow that. They, uh, they chose war with us and they have a dominant position in society that they are using to destroy our institutions, to destroy our way of life, our communities, to attack our children. And so they have chosen to make themselves our enemies. We didn't choose them as enemies. They chose, they chose the enemy framing, and it's our moral duty to fight back against that. I would say outside of this war of necessity, I'm not looking for more enemies. No one on the right, at least unless they unilaterally decide to declare war on me, presents the same threat that the left does today. So I see no reason to try to destroy their life. I would say, focus on what matters and focus on building wherever we can.
0: Okay, and uh, vocal local distance, your your closing statement and then I'll uh, close the space with some of my own uh, reflections.
4: Part of the reason that I take the perspective that I take is because the province that I live in is the province of Saskatchewan. And between 1944 and 2007, the far left party in Saskatchewan, the NDP NDP party won 13 out of 17 elections. Two of those elections were won by Liberals. Of those 17 elections, only two were won by Conservatives. I have been in a in a province where it was moving further and further and further left, and the left had an absolute political hegemony, and the ship was turned around. And one of the ways that the ship was turned around is to make sure that the people in power, who we had on our side, were good minds, who were smart, who were wise, and had good ideas. The Sask Party, which is the party that I've been voting for and belonged for and in fact worked for. It has taken power in 2007 and has maintained political power and now has a 50-seat majority in a parliament of 70. The opposition NDP has been reduced to rubble. They have, I think, 11 seats at the moment. Part of the way that you do that is by doing... By pulling the weeds from the garden and making sure that the leadership you have is quality. The strategy that Nathan talked about before, where the left will cynically allow their bomb throwers into their group in order to expand the Overton window, comes from a book called Beautiful Trouble. The section is called Use Your Fringe to Expand the Overton Window, and it was written by an old NDP staffer who used to be Ryan Miley's, who's the NDP opposition leader in Saskatchewan. That's his chief advisor, and it was born of desperation. We do not want to adopt bad tactics out of desperation. We are perfectly capable of turning the ship around without having to bring in people whose ideas might be horrendous or evil. We don't have to tolerate this. We are capable of bringing in good people with good ideas and winning. We don't need to compromise our morality to do that. And as Douglas Wilson said... Diseased minds break break things and wreck things, and we don't want that in our movement. So I'm going to end it there.
0: Okay, that thank you, and that uh, concludes our, our debate. I wanted to thank everyone who participated, and you know, it, in in many ways, I think that this uh, debate, at least for me, has uh, brought up uh, more questions uh, rather than answered them. I think we had some uh, uh, some provocative points on all sides, some thoughtful points on all sides, and I would just uh, leave. Uh, All of you, maybe to reflect on a number of questions related to the proposition, no enemies to the right. First, how do we define friend and enemy? Um, Is it a a moral calculation or is it a a kind of Carl Schmitt or Schmittian uh, political calculation? Uh, What is the end of of any policy? Uh, Is it personal destruction or is it uh, thoughtful persuasion? Um, I think we've also teased out a distinction of on the right versus in the right. I think that Charles's uh, 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 delineation uh, there actually does uh, matter because it changes the placement or the locus of moral authority. Um, I think there is a big problem of that uh, if we have in the uh, a to the right rather uh, um, uh, placing a to the right uh, uh, creates a, a problem of moral authority being at the at the at the rightmost extreme. Um, Athenian Stranger brought up a, a crucial question on the relationship between. Power and truth. Uh, can power be used uh, in, in the service of truth? Uh, can, is truth or truth and power antithetical to one another? What is the relationship between those two? And then ultimately, what is the relationship of those two to justice? Um, which is sometimes, uh, as I think we would all agree, um, justice can be uh, uh, severe, can be harsh, uh, can, can involve uh, the, the un- an unpleasant uh, realities um, the, the fourth uh, point I would think needs consideration is one of scale and position, uh, the destruction of, let's say, uh, misguided but ultimately powerless individuals uh, at the margins of society, uh, offering them up as, as kind of human sacrifices to the left, especially in a cynical manner, I think is uh, reprehensible, uh, although it's quite common amongst some of our center-left commentators. But I think the opposition uh, to the proposition brings up a good point. When these are um, uh, uh, wealthy, powerful, uh, popular figures, um, uh, that that does change the calculus. Their scale and position uh, does change uh, the calculus. And then finally, um, we had a number of commenters bringing up the political context, uh, both the historical context, uh, for example, 1930s Spain, um, which had its own exigencies, its own uh, dilemma, um, but also perhaps our own context, where um, there is a left-wing domination of the knowledge-shaping institutions. And what does that have to bear on this proposition of no enemies to the right? Um, these are all uh, important questions. I don't think we've answered them, and in fact, I think we've actually just spawned new questions. And I would like to thank everyone. We had a uh, interesting space. We had uh, everyone from Scott Adams to uh, uh, Ashton Cirillo, I believe, uh, the Ukrainian spokes uh spokesperson <laughs> spokesman uh, really honestly um uh, on the space and so um appreciate everyone for attending and uh um you know drop a comment uh, if you'd like uh, me to host these kind of spaces in the future i think there is a room for engaging uh, uh, uh the dissident right uh, and the establishment right uh, i think we need to have a bridge between the two and, and engage in thoughtful dialogue i think all four of our participants uh today uh, demonstrated that. So drop a comment uh, on this uh, thread. If you'd like to see it, give me a thumbs up uh, if that's something you'd like to see in the future and we'll get organized. Um, But uh, it is uh, five o'clock Pacific. Um, Thank you everyone for attending. Uh, I'm going to shut down the space now, um, but uh, feel free to get in touch in the comments, which I'll read later tonight. Thank you so much.